I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. Welcome to King Culture. All right. Well, welcome back to King Culture. It's awesome to have you all with us. And uh, Seth, you told us a couple episodes ago about um, all this extra, not extra, but just different kinds of reading you did on your sabbatical. And, uh, you know, you went back to some some real classics and some classic authors. Yeah, I sure did. One of a, 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 an important moment I think I had in my life was I had a buddy who had a buddy who had a dad, which is, I guess is true for all people. Uh, all people biologically have a dad, at least. <laughs> and his dad was the professor of C.S. Lewis studies at Wheaton University. Oh, wow. And at this time, I think I was a senior in high school. I had basically only read the Sparknotes version of every book I'd ever been assigned. So up to this point in my life, I'd read Harry Potter, The End, and <laughs> summaries online of the books so that I could get by in school. But I'd that does make me feel strangely more happy <laughs> that like you weren't just always like this, that you can actually people can learn to grow, to read and enjoy learning and that sort of thing. Yeah, I was definitely from the school of fake it till you make it yeah. in terms of like literature classes, at least. And I, I had a buddy, a mentor named Jordan, who was constantly trying to get me to read stuff. And the first book that he like tried to get me to read that I actually like was taken by and chose to read on my own was A Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And so I was kind of going buck wild, quoting it left and right all over the place, and it felt like it opened my eyes and I could see, and it was really good. And then uh, my buddy who had a buddy who had a dad who was a C.S. Lewis professor at Wheaton was going to be in town, and the guy contacted me. So it was a youth pastor, a friend of mine, and said, hey, my buddy's dad's in town, and we're going to get together, do a campfire, and smoke pipe tobacco with the C.S. Lewis guy. <laughs> yeah. and like, cause there's, there's, I heard about this. Did he wear it? Did he have a tweed jacket? He looked, he was really into the role. He was, <laughs> he was out of central casting. Like if you saw a guy walk past, you'd be like, that guy's a C.S. Lewis. There's professor. a good chance he is. Uh, yeah. L- Lewis or Tolkien, one of the two. There's no, okay. Chance. You know, Lewis bow tie maybe. Yeah. But <laughs> they were all drinking um, scotch. That was like fancy, but I was 17 and, mm-hmm. I had strong moral instincts, so I was just <laughs> just smoking tobacco underage, not drinking underage. Oh, great. And so we sat on the campfire, and I remember asking him, like, what Lewis wrote a bunch of stuff was the most important thing he wrote, thinking, obviously, he was going to say mere Christianity because that's the only thing I'd written, or <laughs> only thing I'd read. And he said, well, Lewis, from his own perspective, the most important book he ever wrote was The Abolition of Man. Hmm. Okay. It's, it's brief. It's short. It's to the point. It's all about the erosion of objective truth and the rise of subjectivism. So remember, I went and got it. And so for uh, those of us who aren't as enlightened on that, is it one of his fiction works or nonfiction? It's a nonfiction work. Okay. It's, it's short. It's dense. It's fairly technical. Uh, but it's all about, like, this, there's a story in this book where a guy goes for a walk with his friend, and they see this uh, waterfall, and the one kid says... Uh, that's beautiful. And the other kid responds, you mean it's beautiful to you. Hmm. And apparently this happens in some book called The Green Book, and then Lewis basically rants the rest of the book about how how things are beautiful in and of themselves. There is objective reality, and this hyper-subjectivism is going to destroy mankind. It's going to be the abolition of hmm. man. Okay. And so that's the whole thrust of this book. It's pretty good. And then it re-peaked my interest 
when the book that I recommended our whole church read a couple times already is That Hideous Strength, which is a pseudo-adult fairy tale uh, written in the context of like uh, mid-century, mid-20th century London. And the way that the book opens up is uh, like this. He says, this is a tall story about devilry, uh, though it has behind it a very serious point, which I try to make in my book, The Abolition of Man. Oh, okay. So basically you have, Lewis writes two books. One is the nonfiction, uh, apologetic, philosophical argument yeah. against subjectivism, which is The Abolition of Man. The other book is That Hideous Strength, which is making the same point, proving the same point, arguing the same thing, um, but in novel form. Like what the book is doing is the same thing. So I remember reading that introduction, the preface, and getting really excited about the book and how Lewis understood that the core argument made in the book and the core argument in both of these books was the most important thing he did, which is significant because I feel like those are two things that are the least popular things he did. Yeah, You read about Lewis, everyone knows about Narnia, Mere Christianity, Grief Observed, maybe a couple others, uh, uh, like Screw Tape Letters. There's a lot of other good things that people are aware of, but... If yeah. you ask even people who have read a lot of Lewis, have you read that hideous strength? They're like, what's that? You know, or or the abolition of man? They're like, oh, that that kind of is boring technical. But from his perspective, it's the most important thing he had to say. Okay. And so the book makes a lot of points about uh, technology and about the way that technology uh, interacts with our humanity and our design and our capacity to exist as flourishing humans. So that right there is just fascinating to me to go someone writing in the you know, mid 20th century is writing about technology, right? When we think about technology, we almost completely think of digital technology and it feels like, well, that just happened in the last 15 years. Yes. Um, but no, people have been thinking about technology for a long time and, and even well before Lewis, but uh, you know, the similar principles at play that he's thinking through must impact our understanding of technology as well. Yeah, absolutely. And from his perspective, like one of the characters in the book makes the point that says this, um, the question of what humanity is going to be, the question of what humanity is going to be is going to be decided in the next 60 years. We must fight for every inch. They'll stop at nothing. Hmm. So that's a good character. Okay. Good guy saying this. Like, so he's, Lewis is writing this in the fifties. Yeah. And so fast forward, sexual revolution, all the like, gender confusion, the interaction of transhumanism, not in the gender sense, but in like the infusion of technology and humanity sense, plastic surgery, rise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Humans as technology that we are no longer subduing and having dominion as humans over the world, but actually we are ha having this like absurd sense of like having dominion over humans by means of technology. So technology is having dominion over humans, not the other way around. And so you know, 60, 70 years ago, Lewis saying the core questions of what is a human will be decided in the next 60 years. He's doing that through the perspective of is humanity something or is it just fabric that can be malleable mm. and changed and how that humanity is interacting with technology will be a very important question. So it's prophetic. So that being said, there's uh, this quote that I think represents the kind of the core moral question of our day. Okay. And it's really technology that gives rise to the question of this deal. So there's really two schools of thought. So Lewis says this in The Abolition of Man. He says, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem 
had been how to conform the soul to reality. So the wise men of old, the, the core issue is how do I conform my heart, mind, soul to reality? Like the, the, the presumption... There is objective reality. There is objective truth. There is a, some sort of standard and existence that's real. I have to conform to that. And for me to be sober-minded, I must yeah. line myself up. Yep. The goal of maturity is to come close to reality and conform my heart, mind, and soul to reality. And he says, so if that's the case, if the core, core problem is conforming the soul to reality, then the core solution is knowledge, discipline, and virtue. Okay. Right. I want to grow in my understanding of the world. I want to grow in self-control, self-discipline, and I want to grow in uh, the, the virtues that make these things, uh, like that translate m- my heart to my hands, like the actions and the fortitude that allows me to be the person who lives congruently with reality. Okay. S- similar like in carpentry terms, you know, there's cutting with the grain, there's cutting against the grain. And if we want to live with the grain of reality rather than against the grain of reality and get splintered, do we got to know the wood? Mm-hmm. Where's the grain? We got to have the skill then to move in congruence with the grain. Yeah. So that's the the men of old. He's men saying, of old. yeah, like the the former way was this. Then he says this quote, which is interesting. He says, uh, "This is my my phrase, but for magic and applied science, and by applied science he means technology. For magic and applied tech science or technology." Instead, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of man, and the solution is technique or technology. Huh. So he doesn't say wise men of old versus new age fools. He <laughs> says the wise men of old versus magic and technology. Okay. So in technology, the core problem does not exist inside of man, but the core problem exists outside of man. And if the core problem exists outside of man then the solution can be technique, development, technology, and I should be able to subdue the world around me to conform it to my internal world. And it's the same with magic. Magic is about control. Magic is about power. Technology is about control. Technology is about power. I think one of the reasons why uh, so often these fairy tales, fantasy novels, Harry Potter, like J.K. Rowling says this herself, like why do kids love story about magic? Well, because it, it makes you think about agency, yeah. about possibility, about escape. Uh, the core problem is the world around me, not me. And well, so, and especially for kids who often feel powerless and, feel, and really are powerless. It, the idea that a kid could come upon magic would, would make a kid powerful. Yeah, especially if you're Harry Potter and you're locked in a cupboard and your yeah. step-parents are unjust and cruel and the world outside of you is objectively bad, yeah. uh, then the core thing is like, man, if I could just have magic, then I could get over this thing. And so part of the argument Lewis is making is that not that the world is all good out there, but the world out there is real, and that for me to live in this broken world, I need to conform my heart to that reality and do I need there. So, so this kind of extrapolation, I think, leads to uh, a weird reorientation about categories, Right, so and Peter Kreeft wrote a lot of essays. Peter Kreeft, a, a Roman Catholic philosopher, wrote a lot of essays trying to make sense of Lewis's argument here. Um, Kreeft calls this the single most illuminating three sentences he's ever read about civilization. Oh, wow. Was that three sentences? Wise men of old, carnal problem, conforms to reality, magic, applied science, problem is how to pursue reality, which is meant. Kreeft calls that whole phrase in Abolition Man the three most important sentences 
in the history to make sense of civilization wow. period without exception. And so then it comes to the question of like Kreef gives us example of uh, how we separate things into categories. So like, say for example, um, I go to Hank and I my six year old son. Your I assume is who you're talking about. Yes. Okay. Say you go to Hank Williams. Yeah, I was going to say, you're tougher. Yeah, Yeah. so you go to Hank, and I give him four things. I give him a baseball, a basketball, a baseball bat, and a basketball hoop. So four things. Okay. Uh, Baseball, basketball, baseball bat, basketball hoop. And I say, organize these things. Like, put them into two categories. Well, there's really two ways to categorize those things. One would be what Kreef calls the static or the structuralist view, which the boy would then take, put the balls together, okay. basketball and baseball on this side, and the other side he'd put the things that are not balls, right? He would yep. put the bat and the hoop. Yep. Yeah, that would be one way to do it. And that would be a totally valid way to organize it. But then, he, but then if the child's thinking in the more functionalist, which is a more mature way of thinking... Uh, it would require understanding of the games. Yeah. And it would require like knowledge of use of the tools and things like that. He'd probably put, like most adults would, would put the baseball bat and the baseball together. Sure. And the ball and the hoop together. Mm-hmm. So he would go look past the obvious like surface structure of things and look to the function and use of things. And so younger children, Kreef says, are more inclined to organize things uh, structurally put the balls together, put the knot balls together. Whereas the more mature you get, you do it functionally. And so then Kreef goes on to make, to build on Lewis's point, says if you go to most modern people and you said, put these four things into a category, religion, magic, science, technology. Religion, science, magic, technology. Yeah, religion, science, magic, technology. Put these things, like categorize them two okay. and two. The immature, so this is where he's getting offensive here, the immature structuralist would put religion and magic together yeah, uh, and science and technology together. Yeah, and I would think that that would be something along the lines of like, well, magic and religion are both like probably not real, but they're kind of wishful thinking. Yeah. But science and technology, like that, that's objective. Like we can study that. We can, we know that's real. Yeah, it would be that kind of thinking. Maybe on the basis of how it looks. Yeah. Religion and magic look similar, uh, and science and technology look similar. On the surface, they they uh, are, they one looks testable, observable, repeatable, and one looks wishful, yeah. uh, childish, old. Yeah, one looks, oh, isn't that cute? You still believe in magic. Oh, isn't that cute? You still believe in God. Yeah, okay. you, you meet a freshman in high school who still believes in Santa, and you think, Wow. Yeah, sure. Ooh, that's a little old. Yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, and sure, that makes sense. You you meet a a thirty year old who still believes in Jesus. Wow, that's a little old. You know, is uh, so so. There's there's that type of dynamic. Um, so Kreef says structurally, uh, that's a natural categorization. That's the way the modern person looks at it. It's based on how it seems and how they work. Uh, but understanding Lewis's perspective on this. He'd say you need to instead categorize these functionally. Uh, mm. Religion goes with science, and magic goes with technology. Okay. So he's saying that technology is a version of magic or goes with magic, and 
religion is a version of science goes with science. And here's the way that he argues at this. Is, this is Kreeft? This is Peter Kreeft, yeah. And he's saying C.S. Lewis said this, and I'm just saying it longer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sometimes brevity uh, is less helpful. You know, yeah, so, sure. Uh, Lewis's three sentences, Kreeft says a lot longer. Kreeft says this in his book, C.S. Lewis for the Third Millennium, Six Essays on the Abolition of Man. So okay. he wrote a, a book, a whole book about the book. Uh, and so what he says is, uh, science and religion both aim at conforming the mind to objective truth, objective reality. Science conforms our mind to the nature of the universe, and religion conforms our mind to the mind of God and our will to the will of God. Hmm. So the goal of religion is con- is conformity. I want my heart and mind to be conformed to the heart and mind of God. Mm-hmm. I want my That pers- sounds like the wise men of old. Wise men of old, yeah. yeah. Science is about testable, observable, repeatable what is out there and how can I see what is out there and then conform my perspective on the world with what is actually there, not at what I just perceive to be there. Which also sounds like the old the wise men of the, of old. Yeah, so he's saying, in terms of like going back to the, the categories. What they're trying to do. What yeah, they're, they're trying, trying to do. Yeah. Science is trying to conform your perspectives to reality, uh, and religion is trying to conform your perspective to reality, specifically the reality of God. In contrast, uh, Kreef says this, magic and technology conform objective reality to the human will. They both arose at the same time, in the Renaissance, not in the Middle Ages. So people tend to assume... Uh, that the Middle Ages are like this time of magic, but actually the rise of magic was in the Renaissance. Uh, magic and technology both arose not in the age of God, Christendom, but in the age of man, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment. Uh, he calls them Faustian Promethean. The difference is that technology works while magic usually doesn't or doesn't. Uh, but the goal is, and the goal and the purpose behind them is the human values and desires and the state of the soul set them in motion are the same that magic and technology are conforming what is outside of us to the inside of us. Mm. I, it's an extension of the self. I want this abracadabra. This happens. I want this. So I make this and this happens. And so, uh, technology and magic both operate from this perspective of, um, I am allowing what is in me to control what is outside of me through the extension of the human soul or of, uh, of those things. And so, Kreeft and Kreeft is not arguing, therefore, that technology is bad. He's just saying that it's, we need to understand that the danger here is that it turns every human into a magician and it can absolutize or fully baptize the human will because technology allows us to exercise our will in a way that has never been before possible, as though we were magicians. Mm. So, abracadabra, say the magic words, I can change my hair color yeah. right i don't i don't i'm not i don't think anybody would necessarily call that a moral problem but it does demonstrate like the capacity for control that wasn't previously there because of technology mm, sure right now hair color i would argue is probably a moral neutral unless hypothetically i could come up for reasons why sometimes it might be a huge problem or, or whatever um but other things, abracadabra, I want to control this and change this. It becomes more morally of a problem, yeah. especially when it comes to avoiding or not seeing the need to change my heart to conform to the situation of the world. Yeah, Like it can be, it's how addictions form. It's how like grief avoidance, 
like uh, you think about like opiate addiction as an example of technology gone awry. Sure. Is, uh, I'm going rather than developing the fortitude for pain tolerance to go through very difficult things. Now we're an opiate addicted society and all pain is understood to be bad. And so if you're in pain, here's this pill solves your pain problem. But then what ends up happening is you become addicted to the, the situation. Technology ends up triumphing over, yeah. over the person. So the, what well, seems like if your if your heart is like the wise men of old and being conformed to reality and especially to God's reality, then you're what you want and what you will and what you hope for and what you live for and what you're driving at. It becomes better. It becomes pure. It becomes more righteous and good and beautiful. And then you're going to use technology in better ways, right? Then you're going to use science and technology. Um, not to create opiate addiction, but to help people have a pain medication that gets them through surgery, <laughs> right? So, if 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 there's if the heart is is being formed in a good way toward the reality of God, then technology becomes quite good. But to the degree that we're not being formed by the goodness of God and the reality of God, we are going to use it more like magic and more to control things and more to. Uh, take advantage of people and injustice and, and, and on and on it goes. Absolutely. And so the the point that Lewis is making and the point that he ends up like showing, not just saying through the book uh, of the hideous strength is look at what happens when you absolutize or put at the top uh, the technology and the capacity for human flourishing as being understood as to be realized through technological intervention, not through something else. Uh, he even talks about like there's this there's this person who's trying to get uh, more experiments on children approved in the in the book in the book okay. yeah like we got to experiment on children and like well people won't approve that he's like well don't say well ex-, like the word experiment is negative but experimental is totally fine don't say we're running experiments on children say we have an experimental school and it comes with free lunch and people will sign their kids up right away. You know, mm-hmm. like there's, yeah. there's this, uh, you, when you view humans as even a technology experiment, then you're going to like your risk reward ratio on what you ought to be doing and not doing is going to be uh, pretty different. And so I think the, the goal that I want for us to wrap our minds around and recognize is the way that technology tends to function like magic functions in Harry Potter. Yeah. And that creates less of a burden on us as individuals to develop the inner virtues and the soul of fortitude that's required to actually handle suffering well, handle boredom well, um, handle like the intricacies and awkwardness of human interaction well. And I think that's why so many like people in their 30s and 40s are nervous about uh, teenagers and their phone use is because it's like a developmental question. Like, will you be able to persevere through social awkwardness? Will you be able to sit with someone when it gets weird? Or will you immediately invoke magic and live the edited, curated life that technology allows you to live? So it's, it's less like the technology is bad and more like the results of it uh, often can be bad because it no longer places this responsibility on us to conform the soul to reality. Yeah, it makes me think of, uh, I've heard Andy Crouch, who's written quite a bit about technology also, I've heard him talk about technology as magic, and especially how it shortcuts the development. He, he's, he uses the example of music, yes. where um, you know it used to be that if you were going to have music, you had to figure out how to make it with your voice, or you know, with your body, or you know, clap hands and make you know smack stuff against each other obviously that developed into instruments 
which are a form of technology. But eventually, if you wanted to have music, you had to get proficient at it, which meant you had to like learn it and struggle through it and figure it out and be not good for a long time. Whereas now, boom, you just press a button and, and there's music. And um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing. Is like if if everything is that instantly available, I can just have control over it. Presto, change, oh, abracadabra. It doesn't require much of me, right? The the need to start conforming to reality feels like it diminishes because, well, I can just change my reality. Yeah, yeah, and I love the music example is because like the work to develop playing an instrument is what well, it's funny I, I was just watching this video of and this is totally not our thing but i was watching this video of uh of this pastor in this church where they uh they don't use instruments they just sing and they were having a congregational meeting to train people how to sing the four-part harmony mm. right and it's like i mean mm. i could almost have less no less interest in attending a church like that <laughs> but it was so interesting it's like I don't know how to do four-part harmonies. Like, and you're taking these people who are not gifted musically and going, you can learn to do this. Now, it takes work, and it's hard, and it, but it also turns out to be something pretty beautiful on the other end of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's work, and it's difficulty. And even if you don't, aren't the one who's cultivating the capacity to instrumentalize your voice or things, you, at minimum, have to like go and seek out someone who has. Yeah. And so it's either like personal or relational. There it goes. Um, one of the things, so the main character in this book, Hades Strength, is a guy named Mark. And he's a young, just recently got his doctorate guy who wants to have a good career in the university. And he meets this guy named Frost. And Frost is a technologist. He's the one who's pushing technology hardcore. And he's kind of telling Mark, like, um, nothing exists in reality. All that exists is, like, atoms and uh, the the neurons and... It, none of this matters, and all of this, because it is um, actionable, we can act on all of it, manipulate all of it, control all of it. And so, like, who cares about human values? And, 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 and his mentor, Frost, says that Mark needs this re-education. You need to rethink. You think things like love and ambition and hunger are things, but they are not things. They are just your, like, you're not educated enough to see that they are actually not things. And we can actually tap into people's brains and rewire them and uh, trick them. And so the more we can just become detached from these things we've been told are real things, the more we can act on the technology, we'll be free. And so Mark like, has this existential crisis, and he, he thinks about, like, if this is really what's going on, then it's gonna, he says, like, this technology is like lust in that it disenchants the whole universe. Like, it... it turns everything into a thinness. Uh, it, everything else that Mark had ever felt, love, ambition, hunger, lust itself, appeared to be just like milk and water, toys for children, not worth one thing. Uh, and, the, and so there's like this reality that technology dehumanizes because it sees all of it as just this mechanistic cause and effect reality of the world. And if everything's just cause and effect, you can introduce a new cause and have a new effect and it's just this great gigantic game of cogs, wheels, chess, yeah. where someone's playing with them through technology. And so uh, the most human parts of ourselves, like male and female, sexual attraction, food and hunger, like these things, you just reinterpret them as, oh, I can just have a pill or just get a shot or just take a dose. And all of a sudden I can remove myself from even like the most human parts of ourselves, the most... Uh, gritty, earthy, natural parts of ourselves. 
And just like you might say a spell to like be set free from whatever, you're just going to use a technology spell to uh, undo your humanity. And it's all about, so technology and magic are all about not embracing limits. So I want to, I want to come back and talk about like, Hey, what does this mean? Really? Like, like I, I just know you well enough to know Seth. You're not like, yeah, let's just philosophize. Like you, you're driving, like you want this to impact us in some way. So I want to talk about that. But I, I have to ask, um, when I think of C.S. Lewis, and especially the fiction I am familiar with, it's just filled with magic. It's filled with enchantment. So to, I, I'm a little disoriented to think like, wait a minute, like you're saying Lewis is down on magic? You're saying that, you know, uh, oh yeah, magic and technology, that disenchants the world. Well, I mean, all Lewis does is talk about, I mean... Th- the Narnia is just a whole world of enchantment and mystery and wonder and and deeper reality and deeper magic. And so I'm I'm a little like I don't know I'm again having not been as immersed in it as as you've been recently. Like I'm a little thrown off. Like wait a minute, are you saying C.S. Lewis is against magic? Uh, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm what I'm saying is he's saying magic and technology are pretty similar, huh. and Lewis thinks we're foolish to not see the similarities. And we think that technology is just like science, but it's actually more like magic. And so the benefits, like, so like in Tolkien's work. But wouldn't he say we need more magic in the world? We need more enchantment. We need more wonder. I guess it depends what we're meaning by it. Yeah. So the reason that like, so Lewis and Tolkien writing their fairy stories talk about how like there's this world called fairy or fairyland. And it's where you can suspend disbelief and engage and the story has more possibility and it moves you and you see the depth and enchantment of the world. And it's meaningful for our development to have wonder and to think and feel broadly and to exist in this like hypothetical world and to say, what would I do if I lived in this world? How would I feel if I was in this world? What would be like in this? Because it causes us to then approach our normal world with this similar sense of wonder. Like you tend to close off your mind to possibility and overestimate the self. And even Lewis calls it like the chronological snobbery. Like you presume that you know your world fully. And that's part of like the destruction of wonder. Lewis said that the world will not run out of wonders. It only runs out of wonder. Hmm. And, and part of the reason you write fairy stories is to awaken the person who's no longer sees wonder where their wonder ought to be found, who looks at a waterfall and says, that's not beautiful. It's just beautiful to me. Therefore, it's not actually beautiful. Therefore, it's nothing. Yeah. And to say, like, w- awaken sleeper to the reality of the capacity and beauty of the world. And so it's a, it's a device, an instrument to form and shake and wake up. It's like why you, uh, I've heard it said before that, like, if you, if you read broadly, you can live a thousand lives. Like, you can enter into stories and situations and possibilities and these things become a part of you. There is um, Willem Dafoe said, we are all people, therefore we are all people. <laughs> you know, there's this, if we can see ourselves in all these different characters and situations and stories, they actually enlarge our heart. Mm. And actually it's part of conforming the heart to reality is to seeing the depths and breadths of reality and to at least not presuppose that we fully grasp and understand reality. Yeah. And so when he's using magic in these stories, it's a device that's meant to awaken us to the sense of possibility that we maybe have lost in our naturalized 
boring, uh, hum-ho, overly scienced world. Well, and it seems like even, I mean, in the Narnia stories, the people who are like, there's people using magic, um, but then there's this enchanted world that the children don't have any control over. They are trying to get inhabited and understand it and be conformed to it. So you almost see in that the different kinds of magic. There's like magic as a way to explain reality, like this is an enchanted world, and then magic as a way to, as a tool, right? So even in this conversation, I'm thinking like, okay, the key thing seems to me to be the question of will you conform to reality or will you try to control reality, right? You're either conforming or you're controlling. Yeah, and so I think when Lewis is trying to highlight the point of this, Lewis is pretty anti-progress as it like that, that theme comes through pretty often in his writings that, that you see this in the voyage of the Don Treader. People are talking about all the people talking about progress are people who tend to be willing to dehumanize people for the sake of money. Yeah. Like he says, people keep talking about progress. Yeah. He would probably say progress isn't really progress. Yeah. He'd say progress is dehumanizing people for economics. That's what it mostly is. Sure. Uh, it's reducing the human experience for the sake of GDP and calling it progress. And so that's part of like his, his shtick as well. Tolkien that is in there as well. They're very nervous about governments propagating progress. Not even nervous, I would say against. Yeah, sure. Against it. Um, so, so let's, let's drive this home. So you wanted to talk about this, not just because it's interesting, um, but because you hope it shapes us in some way. So, how would you hope that this conversation shapes us? I think there's a core aspect here that we have to understand that it's harder and harder to develop virtue in a world where technology is all over the place. Mm. It, some things do get harder, and the, the ever-present digital and non-digital technologies all around us give us a real good reason and a capacity to escape virtue development. And there is like a steeper uphill climb to resist uh, just kind of this malaise and this like yucky inner self that's covered in technology that is pain avoidant and grief avoidant and suffering avoidant. That's actually part of like what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ are to um, get your hands dirty and get your like into the grittiness of the world. And that virtue development is, is a big part of it. And I think that if we allow even like secular folks around us to put religion and magic in the same category and technology and science in the same category will miss the moral requirements mm. of, of going to these things. I also think this is just an interesting thing to, a way to talk about this to non-Christians. Like if you told someone, I actually think religion and science are in the same category and technology and magic are in the same category. And here's why it'd be an interest, like a thought experiment. Like yeah. what if is the goal to shape the soul so that it conforms to reality or to conform outside of me to the rea- most reality, which is my soul. Like existentialism says the only real thing is my internal process. And so that is reality, is my subjective experience. That is Your reality. Your lived experience. My lived experience. I don't know what other kinds of experiences people have. I, I only live my experiences. but I think only Christ had a dead experience <laughs> and can tell us about it. Right, but even that Maybe is Lazarus. a way, you know, in language of trying to even emphasize experience as the main kind of reality. Yeah. This, the, the, well, it wasn't just my experience. It was my lived experience. It's, it's really real. Yeah, it's extra real. You can't question it. It's like the ultimate footnote. Yeah. You can't question my experience. Whereas I think the wise men of old, to, to Lewis, 
we're saying, no, maybe you should kind of question your interpretation of your experience at least. Maybe not question your experience, but question what you're deducing and yeah. your so what's you're applying from your experience. Because so often your experience tells you the truth about how you're interpreting reality and you're wrong. Hmm. And you have to change your interpretation of reality. Yeah. I like saying that our emotions always tell us the truth about us. They don't tell us the truth about the world outside of us. That they always tell me the truth about how I'm interpreting and assigning value to the world around me. And so they're always an accurate assessment of me. But they're not necessarily an accurate assessment of the world outside of me. Well, and we're not all equally skilled at assessing our emotions. Yes. Like they, they, they could be. <laughs> you know, you could also really misinterpret your emotions. Yeah, and I think that's part of what Luce is getting at, is the danger here is that humans are experts at misinterpreting themselves. And you are going to gauge a whole perspective on how to engage with reality based on what's likely a misinterpretation of yourself. And you're in a dangerous zone there. And so understanding these categories and how they function and how they work is key. And so when you are feeling sad or bored or lonely or angry or tired and you reach for your phone, you're reaching for your wand. Huh, yeah. You're reaching for... Something that you're going like, oh, I'm going to change reality. You know, I'm going to change. And rather than allowing yourself to sit in that, work through it, and be present to reality, you're, the goal is to avoid reality. And that's seeing the phone as a wand. We've talked about the phone before as an umbilical cord. Yeah. Uh, previous episodes, I forget which ones. Or the phone is a pacifier. Uh, it's there to help me stop crying and give me something to focus on. But I think we could also see the phone as a wand mm. to reach for. Yeah. To uh, manipulate, and I don't use that word necessarily negatively, or to affect yeah. the world around me. And I think I want folks listening to this to see you have an uphill battle on development of character and virtue um, because suffering produces character yep. and uh, endurance. And there's a whole chain of how this, this works together. And if you're not able to be present in your negative emotions and difficult situations and your constant flinch to like fix or avoid, uh, that's a, a magic mm. technology flinch, not necessarily a, a Christian wise, wise man of old uh, flinch. Yeah. Well, brother, part of what I love about doing this podcast is how you force me and us to think about stuff that's just not really on our radar. But w when we take the time to think it through and work through it, it's like, oh, this is actually really part of our lives, and it's it's really significant. So I'm appreciative of that. I any last comments or uh, encouragements? Uh, no, it's it's fun to be back. I know we took a couple months off recording. I'd love it if folks listening would uh, leave us a review and say, say some words, uh, <laughs> make some recommendations for stuff to talk about. Uh, you know, we always got ideas cooking, but I'd love to serve people. So if you leave a review and maybe make some suggestions. That'd be fun. Uh, I want to make sure we're hitting people where their lives are, not just where I assume they are. Yeah, great. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. And uh, Seth, thanks for your time. And uh, yeah, we'll see you all next time. Yeah.